Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Hosea chapter 1. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to preach God's Word in chapel. It's a special experience for the Southeastern family to gather, to offer worship to God and to hear Him speak to our hearts from uh, His Word. In fact, uh, the message that uh, I'll bring this morning um, had its genesis in uh, chapel service about a month ago or so. I'm calling this message, Love That Won't Let Go. And I'm going to state five truths about God's love. We're going to be reading several verses in Hosea, but let's just start by reading um, uh, in the first verse of the book. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Shall we pray? Lord God, we ask that your Holy Spirit who inspired your word would speak to us in these moments. Glorify yourself in the way that we respond. And as was said earlier, that we might not only hear your word, but we would obey it to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. About a month ago, I received an email from a friend who has a ministry among Muslims here in the Triangle area. And uh, in the email, he was asking me and others to mourn the tragic murders of three Muslims in Chapel Hill. And uh, I had a fleeting thought when I saw the subject of the email that was not exemplary. Um, I thought Christians are being murdered and imprisoned, persecuted all over the world by Muslims, and you never sent an email to me asking me to mourn that, but now three Muslims are killed and you sent an email asking me to mourn. Not a Christ-like thought. And then I walked into chapel and Dr. Keithley preached from the second chapter of Ephesians on God's love for both Jews and Gentiles. And he challenged us to love like God loves, to love every kind of person. And God convicted me of my lack of love and compassion. It's hardly pleasant to confess such an unworthy sentiment, but I wonder, do any of us always love like God's, God loves us? I don't know about you, but 
I tend to grow in my love for others as I grow in my understanding of God's love for us, especially when I remember that God has commanded us to love like He loves. How does God love? First, God loves us even though we're sinners. Hosea 3 verse 1 says, The Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. The people of Israel were worshiping other gods, but God still loved them and continued to pursue them. In chapter 1, verse 2, the word for their idolatry in the English Standard Version is whoredom. Whore is an offensive word, but what the Israelites were doing was offensive to God, and what Gomer was doing to her husband was offensive as well. The word is not adultery. That's another Hebrew word. This word included payment. It was prostitution. It occurs three times in verse 2 for emphasis. In the Hebrew, it's four times. Marrying a prostitute was extreme for Hosea. Hosea was God's prophet. He spoke God's word to God's people, but he was married to a hooker. A preacher in that situation today, you'd have to say to the elders and deacons, "Um, I need to tell you that I, I went downtown last night and talked to several prostitutes on the street. I wasn't there for their business. I I tried not to look, but I had to do it because I was looking for my wife. She's been working as a prostitute. Um, Please pray for her and pray for me. You can imagine that um, some of that guy's preaching invitations would uh, be canceled. Um, He wouldn't be invited to speak at any men's retreats. His story would be great fodder for exposés in the tabloids, the preacher and the prostitute. Professionally, it was humiliating. But personally, it had to be devastating. Where were you last night, honey? Um, I love you, and when you are with other men, and I know you are, it feels like I'm being stabbed in the heart every day single time. God told Hosea to go and love his unfaithful wife like God loves Israel, even though they're unfaithful. God was demonstrating what his love is like. His love pursues us even though we are sinners. He showed that in Hosea But humanity did not see the best expression of God's love until Christ. Romans 5, 8 puts it succinctly. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank God for his love for sinners. Second, God allows no rival lovers Hosea's wife had other lovers. She was a prostitute. The people of Israel also had other lovers. Hosea 4 verse 13 refers to their idolatry. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. 
People in Israel were worshiping false gods. They wanted fertility, prosperity. So when the Canaanites said that honoring Baal results in prosperity, then they decided they would worship Baal because they prized prosperity more than they prized faithfulness to God. It was playing the whore. God used the marriage relationship as an illustration of his covenant relationship with his people. It's a clear illustration. Marriage is personal and a covenant relationship with God is personal between a person and God himself who is also a person. Marriage involves commitment and a covenant relationship with God also involves commitment. When we're married, it's uh, till death to its part. It's uh, through uh, through thick and thin, you know, richer for poorer, uh, et cetera. I remember vividly when uh, we were married on our wedding day, uh, just, just after the wedding, I felt my ring on my hand and I, I looked down and there it was. And it was, it was a memorable moment for me because just a few minutes before that, I had not been married. But now that ring told me, now I am married. Now I am committed to one person. A relationship with God is also a commitment to a person, God himself. Now, marriage is not exactly like a marriage covenant, right? Because he's God, and the only way we have the opportunity to relate to him is because of his salvation and his gracious offer of a relationship. But a covenant with God is similar to marriage. I mean, he loves us, we love him, we walk together through life, and we're committed to one another. Hosea's wife did not get that. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 5. This distortion of a relationship with God is still with us today. Their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She left her husband and said, I will go after my lovers. Why? for greater income. Her husband and her covenant relationship with her husband, not as important as getting the bread and the water, the wool and the flax. Those are important, not my husband, not faithful love to him. Verse 6, in the first part of verse 7 in chapter 2, God announced he's going to judge Gomer. He's going to block her from receiving prosperity as a result of her sin. He will hedge up her way with thorns, you know, build a wall against her, uh, etc. So in verse 7, Gomer announces that she will return to her husband. Why? Verse 7 says, then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. Why? For it was better for me then than now. She still doesn't get it. She went into prostitution for the prosperity, more wool and flax, more oil and drink, but she learned it wasn't as prosperous as she had hoped. You know, hey, once I paid the overhead and found a new place to live and paid for that, it really wasn't uh, as prosperous as I thought it would be. I guess I'll uh, go back to husband uh, to my husband after all. I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. She didn't get that prosperity is not the point. The point is faithful love, steadfast love. That's what God values. And that's what he expects us to value. Love and faithfulness to a covenant relationship. And here we arrive at the central theme of the book of Hosea. 
The sin Gomer was committing in her relationship with her husband was the sin Israel was committing in the relationship with God. In chapter 2, God referred to the Baal, to the worship of Baal, four times. The people of Israel were unfaithful in their relationship with God and worshiped the false god Baal. Why? Israel was unfaithful to God for the same reason Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea. For the wool and the flax, the oil and the drink. Baal was a patron of fertility. Somehow the Canaanites convinced the Israelites that Yahweh was sufficient uh, to meet their needs in the wilderness. But uh, once they arrived in Canaan uh, for prosperity there, uh, you need Baal. When it comes to agriculture, Yahweh is a little out of his depth. If you want prosperity, you need to go to Baal. And God told them that kind of idolatry was prostitution. Being unfaithful to God because unfaithfulness pays better. They were whores. That kind of idolatry is still with us today. People serve God so they can get the blessings they want. That diminishes God to a dispenser of things. God no longer has value in himself. Um, He has value only for what he can give us. It's the fundamental error of the health and wealth movement. Um, They use prayer. They use faith. They use God as tools to get what they really want, which is prosperity. That's not the gospel. It's paganism, and yet it's the philosophy by which many people live today, and some of those people are in church. They attend, and they serve, wondering what they will get. We get God. He is the great treasure, a love relationship with the one true God who has created everything. He is the prize who meets every need we have, many needs we have that we cannot even name. And when we desire something other than him, something in addition to him, that's the essence of idolatry. Of course, I know this is a seminary and Christian college, so there's no idolatry here. No, we don't worship Baal and Asherah. We worship being right or smart. We worship the perfect female body, sex. We worship the fantasy of being like the conference speaker. We worship somebody else's car. We worship ourselves. But a love relationship with God to which God calls us, it's an exclusive relationship. Unfaithfulness to that relationship is prostitution. God allows no rival lovers. Third, God judges unfaithfulness. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, When Hosea's first child was born, the Lord said, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Jezreel was a place of blood. In Jezreel, um, Jehu executed the wicked queen Jezebel. Jezebel's husband 
King Ahab had 70 sons. Some men murdered all 70 of Ahab's sons and beheaded them and delivered the heads to Jehu at Jezreel. God told Hosea he was going to punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And he said, Hosea, name your first child Jezreel. God wanted to remind his people that his judgment was coming so that every time the name of that child was called, they would remember that the horrific sins that had been virtually uninterrupted throughout the history of Israel, represented famously by the blood of Jezreel, would result in the judgment of God. It was like God telling us to name our child after the busiest abortion clinic in the country, a place of wanton, grisly murder. So every, every time somebody called that name, people would, will remember that God will not allow sin to go unpunished. God's judgment did come. Second Kings tells us that the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III marched his armies into Israel and conquered cities in northern Israel, including Jezreel, and carried the people into exile. Hosea lived to see the prophetic word of God fulfilled. God judges unfaithfulness. God told Hosea to name his second child, No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. When the third child was born, uh, the Lord said, Call his name, Not My People, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Those announcements of God's judgment were worse than the first. You know, it's awful to hear of the end of a city like Jezreel. It's more awful to hear of the end of God's mercy. God was announcing to that generation, he was not going to give his forgiveness anymore because they weren't seeking it anymore. They were set in their sinful ways and God would not continue to bless them. God still judges sin. God is holy and he hates sin. God's judgment is found from Genesis to Revelation. It begins when God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, and it will end when he will send the ungodly into the lake of fire. Preaching judgment has largely gone out of fashion. But through, throughout the history of the church, uh, preaching on God's judgment has been prominent because it is prominent in the Bible. The Puritans, Puritans for example, uh, preached the gospel, uh, but they also preached judgment. In order, they said, for us to fathom the height of God's love, then we'd, we needed to understand the depth of our sin and the perfection of God's holiness. Octavius Winslow, for example, a pastor in the 19th century, preached this. The cross of Calvary exhibits God's hatred and punishment of sin to an extent which the annihilation of millions of worlds could never have done. 
The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus. Winslow said, go, my soul, to Calvary and learn how holy God is and what a monstrous thing sin is and how solemnly bound Jehovah is to punish it, either in the person of the sinner or in the person of the Savior. He said, oh, to learn these two great facts, sin's infinite hatefulness and love's infinite holiness. God has and He will judge sin, but thank God, He has poured out His wrath against sin on Jesus on the cross. Jesus has taken the just penalty for our sin on Himself as our sacrifice. That is how God loves us. At infinite cost to Himself, He has taken our punishment for sin upon Himself. So He maintains His holiness and offers to us the gracious gift of salvation, even to unworthy sinners like us. Praise His name. Fourth, God does not want to give up on us. In the book of Hosea, God allows us to see the conflict in His own heart uh, regarding His holy response to sin. He says in Hosea 6, 4, for example, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. God knew His people were unfaithful to Him and had earned uh, His judgment, uh, but He did not want to send the judgment. He, he wanted to bless. So, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Uh, maybe you want to turn to chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 of chapter 11, where God reveals a struggle in his heart. He asks, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, uh, two cities in, in the plain of Sodom? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. Do you realize how rare a statement like that is in the Bible? God, as it were, opens His heart to us and allows us to see His struggle over punishing people He loves. Using anthropomorphic language, he portrays for us the conflict in the Godhead between wrath and mercy throughout the book of Hosea. Indeed, throughout the prophetic corpus, God says that his judgment is coming on Israel and it is coming on Judah. But here, lest we think that God is merely a cause and effect principle. Lest we reduce him to a theological system, he shows us that before judgment he asks, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Commentators are quick to reconcile the conflict in God by 
referring to the survival of a remnant or a delay in God's judgment. But Hosea doesn't resolve the conflict. He merely quotes God as testifying to the struggle in his own heart between justice and compassion. Before God sent judgment, he waited for Israel to turn to him because he loved them. God doesn't want to give up on us. Last fall, I uh, read about a little boy who went swimming in the lake behind his house in South Florida. He dove into the water and began to swim out, not realizing that an alligator was swimming toward him. His mother was looking out the back window of the house, and she saw what was happening. She ran out as fast as she could, screaming as she went. He heard her voice and made a U-turn, headed back toward the dock, and he reached his mother, but just as he reached her, the alligator reached him. And as she grasped his arm at the dock, the alligator took hold of his leg in the water. That began a tug of war between the alligator and a loving mother. The alligator was much stronger, but the boy's mom was more passionate and would not let go. A farmer happened to drive by, heard the screams, and he jumped out of his truck and sprinted to the lake and shot the alligator. After weeks in the hospital, uh, the boy survived. His legs were badly scarred, but his arms were also scarred where his mother's fingernails had dug into his arms in her determination not to let her son go. A reporter interviewed the boy uh, after that traumatic experience. He asked to see the scars, and the little boy pulled up his pants leg and showed him the scars, and then he showed him his arms. He said, look, I have these scars because my mom wouldn't let go. You and I have scars, too. We have the scars of sin and pain in our past. Some of those scars are ugly. Some of them still hurt. But a lot of us in this room also have scars from when we wanted to walk away from God, when we were pulled away from God by the world and the devil and our own flesh. But God did not let go of us. This is the heart of God. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God does not want to give up on us. By the way, is that the way we relate to people who are headed for judgment? Billions of people are headed for an eternity in hell. Do our hearts recoil 
within us? Are we disturbed? Are we distressed by that? Do we say with God, how can I let you go into eternity without Christ? My heart is repulsed by the fact that judgment is going to come upon you. Or have we given up and resigned ourselves to the inevitable? God does not want to give up on us. Praise his name. Fifth, God expresses his love through us. Consider consider chapter 3 again. Hosea's wife worked as a prostitute. Evidently, she sank so low that she was being sold as a slave. God told Hosea to go and buy her. Uh, Slaves were sold naked. So when a woman was on sale, the the men bid freely. I wondered, somebody go to Hosea? Tell him, uh, Hosea, I just saw your wife uh, in the market. She's being sold as a whore. I thought you'd want to know. Imagine Hosea's humiliation. The man of God going to buy his wife, bidding against other men. At the end of the bidding, Hosea finally bid... Fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley sold to Hosea. And so Hosea took his wife and wrapped his cloak around her and led her home. Hosea did something God does. He loved someone who was unworthy of his love. And God told Hosea, to love his unfaithful wife the way he loved unfaithful Israel. God has told us to do the same. Andy read it earlier in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We see the way God loves unworthy sinners, and then we know how to love sinners too. Several, uh, several years ago on a Sunday morning, a young lady uh, named Jessica was driving around Raleigh with a shotgun in her truck, planning to pull over and uh, to kill herself. She was involved in a sinful lifestyle, and um, her uh, boyfriend was abusing her. She was at the end of her rope. She pulled into the parking lot of our church. Uh, that's where she was going to kill herself. But for some reason, she got out of the truck and walked in the building. We were in in worship, but um, during worship, we have a group of people uh, always praying. We call it our boiler room, and somehow Jessica got connected with uh, a man uh, named Charles who was uh, in that group praying. Jessica told Charles what she uh, was planning to do, and she showed him the shotgun shell. She was going to put in the shotgun to kill herself, and Charles said, well... First of all, uh, Jessica, uh, give me that shotgun shell because um, you're not going to be needing that today. And Charles shared the gospel with her and urged her to come to Christ. And Jessica said she wasn't ready to do that, and she left, and she ambled into our worship service. And um, at the end of worship, some people talked with her, and then um, eventually she talked with me as well. Uh, Jessica was like Hosea's wife. Uh, I asked her 
where she worked and she said she was in the adult entertainment industry. She was angry at the church, angry at God. She challenged everything the Bible says about Jesus. It just did not make sense to her. I answered her questions as best I could, but she was far from satisfied. And I told her she needed Jesus, and I asked her if she wanted to put her faith in him. She laughed, and she said, well, if that ever happens, I'll make sure you're there to see it. Jessica came back to worship again, and she had more questions. And we began to love her in every way we could. Sharon and I spent uh, time with her over meals, and we talked her through uh, some of the crises in her life. And then she disappeared for a while. And then she came back. She, she seemed to have this twofold agenda by which she was stabbing at God at the same time she was reaching out to him. And then she told us one day that she was moving to another city in our state, but she said she wanted to stay in touch. And sure enough, I received an email from Jessica one day saying that she wanted to, to meet with Sheridan and me. And we arranged a time and we drove to her city and sat down at a table to talk with her. And then she asked me, she said, do you remember when I told you that I didn't want to receive Christ, but if I ever did, I'd make sure you were there to see it? And I said, no, I don't remember you saying that. But Jessica had remembered. And she said, that's the reason I wanted to talk to you today, because I'm ready to receive Jesus and become a Christian. And she wanted us to help her to do it. So... We talked with Jessica and helped her to ask Jesus into her life. And after she was saved, she called me up one day to apologize. And I said, what for? She said, um, well, I realize now that if I had killed myself in your church parking lot, that would have really been upsetting to you and uh, to the whole church. And I asked her, I said, um, Jessica, why did you get out of the truck that day? And she said, I don't know. I said, Jessica, I know. It's because God loves you. He got you out of that truck that day to save your life. Even though you kept running from him, God kept loving you and kept pursuing you. He didn't give up on you, not just to save your life, but to save your soul forever. Well, during Hosea's lifetime, even though Israel had gone far down the road of sin, even though they were not responding to God's overtures of grace and love, God continued to love them and pursue them. God told Hosea, go again, go pursue her. And God added, as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. That's how God loves Israel us and everyone. Even though we run away, He pursues us. Even when we're full of pain and regret, He finds us and He heals us. He follows us in outrageous grace based on nothing but His infinite love for undeserving sinners. He poured out that love on the cross, taking our sin and its penalty upon himself as our sacrifice. And then 
He rose again to show that he can give life to everyone. This is the gospel. Praise his name. Shall we pray together? God, we do offer you praise for your love and grace in Christ. Uh, today, by your word in Hosea, help us to be warned by the reality of your holy judgment. Help us to be welcomed by your love and grace. I pray, Lord, that every day we will embrace the God who pursues us. And every day we will feel compassion for those under wrath today. And that we will run to the world with the gospel while there is still time. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.